Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello. Welcome back to Say Why to Drugs after a somewhat more lengthy than I intended hiatus. I'm Susie Gage, a lecturer and researcher at the University of Liverpool. I have lots of exciting news since I last spoke to you, but I'll save that for after the episode, which is a special one as it's the first Say Why to Drugs live. This was recorded last week in front of an audience of psychology undergrad students and assorted others and focused on the question, how do drugs affect the brain? something that I've touched on in previous episodes, but not really fully explored on the podcast. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, psychopharmacologist Dr Carl Roberts, who you might remember from the Cognitive Enhancers episode. This is a long one, so I'm going to stop waffling on here, but join me at the end to hear more exciting news, and for now, listen to Carl and I say why to How Drugs Affect the Brain live. I've started recording and I picked up a microphone, which obviously isn't connected to speakers, so you, you can't hear me any louder, but it is recording into my special little friend here. Hello, and thank you for coming to the first ever live edition of Say Why to Drugs. My name is Dr. Susie Gage. I'm a lecturer here at the University of Liverpool, and I'm particularly interested in understanding associations between recreational drug use and mental health. And for this special live episode, I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Carl Roberts. Hello. Uh, (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Carl Roberts. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm a researcher of psychopharmacology. Great. Uh, So this special... I've got to stop saying it's special, because what if it's not special? This edition of (laughs) of Say Why to Drugs is specifically focusing around something that I haven't really touched on in many of the episodes to date, and that's how do recreational drugs affect the brain? We've got a few sort of questions lined up, and we've also asked people who are in the audience to submit questions beforehand, so we've got a couple of audience questions. But before we start talking about how drugs affect the brain, I thought it might be useful to have a little bit of a kind of explainer about the brain and neurons and neurotransmitters. So we know that the brain is made up of billions of brain cells called neurons and that electrochemical signals are passed from neuron to neuron uh, by chemicals that are released across the gaps between neurons, which are called synapses. These chemicals are neurotransmitters and we've got loads of different ones, don't we? Yeah, 
<laughs> okay, so that begs the question, how do recreational drugs impact on this? It's a good question. Um, so, basically, drugs work on, in terms of neurotransmission, would work on one of two broad mechanisms. So, usually, you a drug would uh, either mimic uh, an endogenous ligand for a receptor, so that means... Uh, something that the body produces of its own accord to bind to receptors. Um, so cannabis and heroin would be good examples of drugs that mimic a chemical that's produced within the body themselves. And then uh, the other broad way that they function is to have some effect on a classic uh, neurotransmitter which is produced in the body. So um, you might see a kind of a big, big stimulation of the release of monoamine um, small molecule neurotransmitter, or you might see that it stops the reuptake of a neurotransmitter. So, one 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 mechanism of action would be that it mimics the body's own neurotransmitters, and another one would be that it stimulates the release of or blocks the reuptake of uh, a, a classic neurotransmitter. Okay, so Such let's. As, so yeah, so examples. It's probably good to best explain with examples in it. So some of the body's own. Uh, um, Neurotransmitters, these monoamine neurotransmitters, the most famous ones are probably dopamine and serotonin. Um, yeah. 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 So let's start off then with the ones that mimic our own neurotransmitters, because we have an endocannabinoid system in our brains, don't we? Does that mean that our brains make cannabis? Well, kind of, <laughs> in a way. The active ingredient in cannabis, which is THC. Um, works on specific receptors in the brain called cannabinoid receptors. Um, so the ones in the brain are CB1 receptors. Our brains produce their own chemicals which would normally bind to these receptors. Uh, so that's under our normal regulatory function. So uh, we produce a chemical called anandamide, um, which actually comes from the Sanskrit meaning uh, joy or delight. And so that is basically uh, something that is produced... Um, and uh, the endocannabinoid system kind of is involved in our normal regulation of mood and appetite and pleasure, pain as well. What I would normally say is what's quite interesting about studying plants or plant-based drugs such as cannabis is that they act on receptors in the brain. And studying, studying them has told us quite important insights into our normal regulatory physiology because these receptors aren't just in our brains sitting there waiting for us to take drugs so it's not that someone that has never taken cannabis or has never taken heroin doesn't know what it feels like to not have their CB1 receptor stimulated or an opioid receptor stimulated. It's just that these drugs work on these receptors, so they mimic our body's own uh, regulation of these processes that these systems are involved in. Yeah, so these kind of drugs can really tell us a lot about how our own brains work, sort of regardless of the use of recreational drugs. Absolutely, like, yeah. It wasn't called the endocannabinoid system before we discovered cannabis and the impact of cannabis on Well, exactly. Brain. So it's named after cannabis. With these drugs and with opioids, like such as heroin, morphine, uh, the drugs themselves, the molecules in the drugs themselves are isolated first, and then the receptor systems that they work on were then kind of like discovered afterwards because it was kind of, you know, researchers thought, there must be a reason we have these receptors. And nicotine 
is another drug that mimics, so it mimics acetylcholine, I believe, and that's uh, how nicotine has its effect on the brain as well. Mm -hmm. So what about the other types, the other way that drugs can impact, so the ones that moderate the effect of our existing neurotransmitters or moderate the levels of our existing neurotransmitters? Normally they would have a large effect on monoamine neurotransmitters, like I said before, but drugs such as uh, MDMA, it works on um, serotonin transporters to have a really, really massive effect on the production and release of serotonin. So again, serotonin is involved in lots and lots of normal regulatory functions. It's involved in mood, appetite, gain. But you see these kind of like euphoric effects because of this, these really, really large amounts of serotonin being produced. And cocaine, uh, as well, is an example of a um, monoamine reuptake inhibitor. So normally when a uh, neuron releases uh, a neurotransmitter, once it kind of stimulates a receptor, it would then be taken up by the neuron into the cell, um, whereas uh, cocaine would be an example of uh, the drug blocking this action. So the, um, the chemical is then left to kind of still move around in the synapse so you get a build-up and it's free to stimulate many many receptors and caffeine also works in that way as well doesn't it so the drugs that we've talked about so far are primarily agonist drugs so they would stimulate a receptor to cause a biological effect or to cause a you know an effect in the body the brain specifically uh, whereas caffeine is an example of an antagonist. So it works on adenosine receptors. Um, and adenosine is a neurotransmitter which makes us feel sleepy and it builds up gradually throughout the day and uh, makes us eventually fall asleep. So what caffeine does is it antagonizes the receptors that adenosine works on and basically blocks the effects so it makes us feel awake. So that is a really neat example of an antagonist drug working. Very nice, very nice. Thanks. So all of the all of what we've talked about so far has been about kind of acute intoxication effects. So what these drugs are doing in our brain when we're high or mm-hmm. when a person is high. What kind of impact do drugs have longer term? Um, is that harder to research? It is a lot harder to research. However, well, it's a good question. I think the, the important thing about this is that I think it's a really important point that you raise about looking at the difference between acute effects and long-term effects. So there are two main things that whenever anyone talks about drugs, then it, I just I feel the need to hammer home, is that there's a massive difference between on-drug effects and long-term effects from repeated use, and also the difference between recreational drug use and its use in medicinal settings as a possible therapy. Uh, so usually... Um, if we are looking at on-drug effects, and that might be the stuff that we are interested in, we're looking at potential therapeutic effects of a drug, uh, whereas long-term effects would often come from research on recreational drug users. However, they're not the same samples, and it's kind of it's it's quite difficult to um, to reconcile them because if you look at uh, some a harm or some kind of um, adaptation to a neurotransmitter system which has come from repeated use of a recreational drug then that is not a reason to stop or against experimenting with a drug for, as, as, for possible therapeutic use however I've gotten a bit off topic there long term effects that's not off topic I think that's really important um, thanks <laughs> so uh, long term effects yeah they are a lot harder to study so Basically, 
A lot of the acute effects have come from uh, preclinical work, animal work, understanding the the basic pharmacological mechanism of action. There's a lot more studies been done in humans with long-term effects. And what you would normally do to try and study a long-term effect of any drug, really, is get a drug-using population, so, for example, a bunch of cannabis users or a bunch of ecstasy users or a bunch of cocaine users or whatever it is that you're interested in researching, and you would compare them... Uh, against a bunch of people that have never taken any drugs, if you can find them, um, and uh, and you'd compare them on, potentially you might measure a cognitive task or something like this. Uh, but there's an awful lot of kind of confounding uh, factors in that research in that often if you try and study, say for example, uh, an ecstasy using group, it's quite difficult to find people that take a lot of ecstasy that haven't taken a lot of other drugs yeah polydrug use is very much when we try and do these studies to understand the impact of different individual substances that's not how people use drugs in the real world almost everyone uses it like well at least something like alcohol alongside mm-hmm. other drugs um and most people who use one illicit drug will potentially use other illicit drugs yeah but before we get too much onto the human studies, oh. I want to talk a bit more about the kind of longer term impact at a kind of molecular level. So the type of research that's been done with animal studies, how does that feed into what we know about, for example, tolerance or withdrawal? So things like long term ch- changes in levels of neurotransmitters in the brain or that kind of thing. How much do we know about what drugs do in that in that kind of way? I guess there are three kind of broad uh, long-term things that you get from animal research so down regulation up regulation and neurotoxicity down regulation would be if you have a lot of a um, drug a neurotransmitter circulating in your brain then your uh, body's response to that would be to become less sensitive to the drug so it kind of like tries to adjust itself so that it's not getting over overly stimulated. What you get get then is basically that you need would need to take more of a drug to gain a similar effect because you have less receptors that are basically available to stimulate. In terms of so that could be a mechanism by which tolerance occurs and also um, withdrawal as well because if you think that a um, and you're, uh, you know, a bunch of receptors have kind of like become desensitized because you're having lots and lots of circulating levels of a neurotransmitter in the brain. Um, then if you stop having taken a drug and your body then just produces its normal amounts of that neurotransmitter, but you have far fewer um, active receptors available to be stimulated, then it makes you feel like you actually have a, like a lack of that substance. And it ties in really well with what we know from the sort of behavioural literature that people's motivations for taking drugs over time do change and people do experience tolerance, needing higher doses to feel the same effect and withdrawal, feeling awful if they stop taking a substance and finding that the way to make themselves feel better is to take that substance. So I think that kind of, you can see the potential link there between what's happening at a molecular level and what we experience if we take a substance. So what, what about neurotoxicity? I guess this is kind of uh, the idea that a drug would produce a damaging effect to a neuron, which is irreversible, I suppose, in some way. Yeah. 
And as you've pointed out, like a lot of this kind of research comes from animal studies, in particular yeah. rats, but potentially primates, but but mostly rats. And there are plenty of, I mean, it's stating the blindingly obvious, but there are plenty of important differences between a rat brain and a human brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, though, when it comes to complex things we think of as particularly human, like emotions and intelligence and consciousness, potentially. And these are kind of the things that when we take drugs... Those are the things that are affected. So it's kind of those things that are particularly important to understand like in humans compared to rats. Yep. So how, how do we go about doing this research in humans? I think you mentioned one way, which is sort of doing these kind of neurocognitive experiments where we get a group of people who use a drug and a group of people who don't use a drug to both do sort of like a cognition task or an emotional recognition task or, you know, that kind of thing. Not measure the brain directly, but look at behaviours that we think are related to brain processes and you mentioned some of the limitations around that as well so particularly polydrug use but there are also quite a few other limitations aren't there yeah <laughs> well, so so th- things like um the people who choose to use recreational drugs are different from the people who choose not to in lots of ways other than their drug use so actually differences might be might have happened before drug use people might have had different cognition levels before they ever used a drug yep. and actually what we're looking is causality in the opposite direction yeah um and there's also kind of quite large uh, individual variability in their susceptibility to neurobiological changes as well yeah um and also the way that we would try and get a measure of a history of drug use from from a participant in a, in a, in a, in a study would generally be through self-report which if you think that um, if, 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 if a lot of these drugs cause memory problems, then they might have problems kind of accurately uh, getting a, a measure of how much drugs they've taken over the last 10 years. But on top of that, even if they did remember every occasion that they had taken a drug and every um, single amount in that episode, uh, we have absolutely no idea at all of the purity of that drug. So what you're left with is a lot of guessing at, you know, we don't have the real detailed information on patterns of use um, and we don't you know have really kind of a good handle on differences between um, you know kind of effects of sporadic use of long periods of abstinence most of these substances have been investigated individually uh, and most of them suffer from a lack of these kind of like um, longitudinal studies on prospective users um, to kind of see you know the um like impact over time impact over yeah. time yeah and then also um another caveat is that we don't know an awful lot about recovery with abstinence from drug use as well and also going back to the self-report people might mm. not feel very confident in disclosing information about illicit drug use yeah so what what other ways are there then that we can look at this question so what about things like neuroimaging yeah, well, neuroimaging is another really interesting part of this because because we understand uh, a lot more about uh, brain function from a lot of the animal research as well. We can this can inform uh, areas of the brain that might be of specific specific interest from neuroimaging research. Sometimes some of the kind of like cognitive effects of prolonged drug, drug use can actually be quite subtle, whereas sometimes uh, certain neuroimaging techniques can detect. Uh, structural or functional brain changes prior to a 
behavioural manifestation as well. Yeah, so what are the different kinds of neuroimaging techniques that we can use? Right, okay. A good way to assess the amount of receptors available in the brain is to use um, positive emission tomography. So this would use uh, kind of labelling a neurotransmitter with a um, radio tracer. And what would happen then is that that would bind to the receptors that it kind of has an affinity for, and you would be able to image the amount of receptors available. So this could p- could potentially show you uh, the amount of downregulation or the amount of receptors available in a specific area of the brain. Um, so what you might have is, you might be particularly interested in some areas of the brain where there are an awful lot of cannabinoid receptors or there are an awful lot of serotonin receptors, and you might see that there would be some kind of like reduction in them areas with use and that's that's a pet scan that's a yeah. pet scan you can have magnetic resonance imaging as well which can tell you information about stru- brain structure as well as blood flow so the idea of these studies is that uh, the amount of blood uh, kind of pumping to an area of the brain is a proxy for <coughs> neuronal firing and you can imagine that if you have degradation to um, a bunch of receptors in the brain that there might be kind of like reduced blood flow to them areas or increased to make up for downregulation or something like this. Yeah. So it seems like from this way that we can tell sort of a little bit about potential long-term risks or harms from regular use of various substances. What about, can we tell whether any of these risks or harms are reversible? Um, I think it's kind it's of... Very one, difficult. It's one of those things, isn't it, where... It's it's hard to do research into illicit drugs mm. anyway, and the more the more sort of fine grained your question is, the the more difficult it is to recruit samples and that kind of thing. The longer scale you need for people who've previously used a substance regularly, then stopped. Yeah, I'd, I would say that with most substances that have been studied, then the findings are mixed. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I think this seems like a really good time to bring in our first question from the audience. If that's all right. Um, I should also say that if there's some unusual background noise, it's because there's a little baby in here. So it just goes to show that it, uh, your children are never too young to get educated about drugs. Hi. Thank you very much. Hello. My question is this. There are two observations in the literature regarding how drugs work, which the way I see it, they contradict each other. The one is that people that take drugs, the drugs work on their nucleus acumens in a way that every time they take them, the drug, the brain considers that a novel stimulus. So every time it's like the first time. And that makes the reward-driven learning associated with drugs much stronger compared to other natural rewards. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we also know that Uh, it's really difficult for drug users to go back to that very first high they experienced the first time they used the drug. So how do these two go together? So you mentioned the nucleus accumbens. So, I mean, obviously... Do you want to say a little bit about what the nucleus accumbens is? Uh, So the nucleus accumbens is a very small structure in the brain which is located in the ventral striatum. And it is quite an important component of what we consider our mesocorticolimbic reward system. Or reward uh, system. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, uh, there are a lot of... Drugs on the brain tend to work on what we term like a, a reward system. The nucleus 
accumbens seems to be an area of this reward system which most drugs do have an effect on. And people take drugs because they enjoy taking drugs. I think that's an important point to mention that yeah. sort of it's not surprising that drugs are associated with the reward pathway because that's why people take them, at least initially. Yeah. I think what you're kind of talking about there in terms of uh, novelty of drug use uh, in the first instance kind of signalling something that would uh, make you want to take it again or like so it's a, I think this feeds into do you know the um, incentive sensitization? yeah yeah what I should say is that okay right so basically what I think <laughs> no, I'm is just happening make there you explain it. <laughs> what I think is happening there is that this novelty thing would come under the term wanting um, where uh, there's parts in the in the nucleus accumbens which are particularly important for um, salience orienteering, so uh, things in the environment becoming well salient to you. And one thing that might become salient to you would be a reward. However, um, salience and reward in uh, this example are independent of one another. So liking, um, which can be mediated by other areas of the reward system as well as other um, neurochemicals as well so a drug can sensitize your brain to want to take a drug very very quickly whilst you still the pleasure that you get from taking it reduces over time so they're not really they don't really correlate the amount that you uh, a drug is perceived as being something that you want doesn't necessarily correlate with the pleasure that you get from taking it the idea is that that change in the brain for you to orienteer towards a drug reward or whatever can work also independently of a real-life cognitive evaluation of what you want to do, which would be like more prefrontal cortex kind of thinking about it. And this is kind of almost like an implicit kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I think that them kind of changes can uh, happen very, very quickly and can last for a long time as well, even after you... Um, kind of stop taking drugs as well. Uh, is that anywhere near yeah, what you were after? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, and I think it's also important to point out that the vast majority of people who use drugs won't develop a disordered mm. pattern of use. Most people who use drugs use drugs uh, not to a sort of addiction level. So that also can impact on how quickly tolerance builds up, how how severe withdrawal symptoms are and how likely this is to keep this kind of... I mean, I'm not a brain area expert, which is why I got Carl along and why I'm making him answer all the difficult questions. Um, but as to my understanding, it's why the kind of brain firing could remain rewarding for people who aren't, who don't develop problematic use. Yeah, I think. well, I think that's another uh, really important distinction to make is that Problematic drug use and kind of compulsive use is actually, you know, a very, very small proportion of the population of even of drug users as well. So not all drug users will go on to become problematic drug users. There's only, I think it's like 30% of something like this, which might go on to kind of have more compulsive drug use. But if you think that it's a really, really small number of all drug users that might potentially have a neurobiological vulnerability for compulsion and then spread that across several different drugs so you have things that work on an opioid system you have things that work on a cannabinoid system you have serotonergic drugs you have 
um, drugs that work with dopamine. dopamine. So there's such variability of the mechanism of how these drugs act that there are going to be different types of people that have different problems with different drugs. So yeah, can we, can we, can we that, sum really. up the entire answer to that question as, turns out it's quite complicated. <laughs> Great. <laughs> right, let's move it's, on to, it's, the, to it's, the next it's question. It's certainly more complicated than I understand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so far we've kind of covered animal studies of intoxication and neuroimaging studies of long-term use. What about combining the two? Have, what about neuroimaging studies while people are intoxicated? With really in the infancy of these but they're really mega exciting um there's tell me more uh, <laughs> tell me about it um so um I, I will give me give me give me give me some time um so there was a study in 2016 that came out which was the first i think it was the first fMRI study and so there's this group uh, the the Beckley Imperial Research Group so it's funded by the Beckley Foundation done in Re- Imperial uh, Robin Carhart Harris is the kind friend of, of the podcast, and um, they gave their participants LSD, and they they did uh, these scans, the fMRI scans, where they did analysis called functional connectivity. So the idea is that if two, if various regions of the brain are activated at the same time, that they have some kind of functional significance, and uh, their kind of finding is that under LSD. Uh, under the influence of LSD, that people's brains start, uh, normally segregated areas of the brain start to communicate with each other. Um, so basically it kind of, it's, it's proposed that it enhances communication between areas of the brain that wouldn't normally communicate with each other. And therefore this might underlie an escape from kind of like rigid cognition. So so basically what's happening is with these drugs, they are conducting drugs to find out mechanisms of how they affect the brain so that they can gain insight to how they then might be useful in therapy in some way. Now, uh, with this particular one, this kind of uh, break from rigid cognition might help in a kind of psychotherapy setting to help kind of treat things like depression or be used in talk therapies where people find it difficult to open up. Well, would you believe we have a question from the audience that is exactly along these lines? Um, so I, I am actually quite interested in psychology. Nice t-shirt. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Do you like the song Roses? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> going a bit off topic. Off, off, but, off podcast, yeah. guys. Um, so uh, I've been looking at the research into psychedelics, and um, there's a lot of stuff suggesting that, uh, like you said, the studies saying that it's good for openness and creativity and that sort of thing, and quite a few things suggesting that um, it could be used to alleviate depression, anxiety, maybe even severe drug addiction. Um, but it's usually in the setting of using it as sort of medication. Um, but then you look at how it's used as, for example, DMT um, is used in ayahuasca and by the shamans in the Amazon, but they don't just administer the drug. They've got a specific sort ritual. of routine or a bit yeah. ritual around it, which is um, there's songs involved in certain dances sometimes. Um, and that seems to affect how effective it is in actually treating these problems. Um, so my question is, what is the actual potential for using it in um, a therapeutic setting? Um, and I'm not just talking CBT, like could there be a therapy itself that is based around psychedelic use in the same way that it's used in therapy, I guess you could call it that, um, it by the shamans in the Amazon or with a boga in Africa that's used for drug addiction, things yeah. like that. 
Um, yeah, what's the potential for that? Great question. I think there is an awful lot of potential for um, a lot of psychedelic drugs to be used in uh, various therapeutic forms. I know that psilocybin mushrooms are currently in phase two clinical trials for depression because they seem to have um, an effect on mood. Um, so basically, with clinical trials, you have your phase one and your phase two, where um, their trials are built around kind of establishing efficacy and dose, really. So kind of people that can tolerate them and they want to get the, the dosing right. With drugs like this and like ayahuasca, um, which is DMT. So yeah, the active um, ingredient rather is DMT in the, ayahuasca. The idea is that unlike other. Uh, medications for things like depression or anxiety or whatever that you would um, take on a daily basis. The idea is that something like a powerful psychedelic drug or hallucinogen might catalyze a profound life-changing vision or a um, an experience that can give you insight to um, kind of like gain control of things. You mentioned Iboga. Um, and ibogaine and the, the treatment that they use there is, what happens is, is that um, people take this drug and they have this quite intense hallucinatory episode for like 12 hours I think it is and I think it's very pleasant and then they come out of it and there's a window especially with like opiate addiction they have uh, a window of a couple of days where they don't have any withdrawal symptoms from opium op- um, heroin and uh, I've pointed at you like you take it then you know right, heroin um, and, uh, and that's like a good window and a good opportunity for them to seek psychological assistance that they might need what else are we talking about ayahuasca yeah so um, ayahuasca being used by shamans etc in the Amazon um, I think the stuff about kind of chanting and the rituals is really really interesting and really cool and, and, and I think that feeds into some stuff that you are interested in with like kind of set and setting and stuff like that as yeah well. absolutely i th- i think in terms of use for therapeutic reasons there's a couple of different ways that these uh therapies are being conducted at the moment and a uh, small plug alert there's actually a mini series of three episodes of the say why to drugs podcast that you are listening to right now, uh, which are specifically about therapeutic medicine. Um, interviews with Dr. Ben Sesser, Professor Celia Morgan, and Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo, who are doing work using uh, MDMA, ketamine, and psilocybin, I think, but also are involved in research into other psychedelics. Or, like, I mean, ketamine and MDMA, you could sort of debate whether they're, they're not classic psychedelics, but they do have some sort of impact like that. But there are two different ways that these kind of therapies work both of them involve also talking to a therapist but you either talk while intoxicated or you have an intoxication experience and then have your therapy session sort of directly after or soon after so that well the way that um albert who i interviewed described it to me was like you wouldn't talk all the way through a film so you you watch the film you experience the intoxication effect and then you talk about it with your therapist afterwards and it's so both of these ways are quite kind of interesting methods of um dealing with it and we're still very much at the early stages in terms of the science of of understanding this it's at the moment it's kind of open label trials where i mean it's quite hard to blind someone as to whether they've taken a psychedelic drug or not but um we're still kind of at the stage where as carl was saying it's working out tolerability and um side effects and that kind of thing but it's looking really promising yeah um there's uh so with ayahuasca specifically um there's been 
an observational study, I think, for seeing how effective it might be for, um, I, think it's a, I think it's addiction. Um, it's on the, uh, do you know the website, Map, are we allowed to plug a website? Yeah. Maps, um, they've, they've got a big kind of index on there of all of the clinical trials and all of the studies that are being conducted at the moment with psychedelic drugs. Um, so it'll be on there. I think that they're probably trying to take it into some one of the phase one or phase two trials, but I don't think that they're. I don't think there's been any, anything other. I don't think there's any been, been any controlled studies with it yet. Um, I know that. Um, w- just as an aside, um, the uh, with ayahuasca because it contains the uh, carpi. Is it the carpi vine? So the vine is a monoamine oxidase, oxidase inhibitor, and uh, so there's another plant in it which has the DMT, and the DMT doesn't work unless it has the monoamine oxidase inhibitors in there as well. So this brew contains quite. Uh, you know, complicated mixture of chemicals. Chemical interaction. Yeah, Yeah. so, and I know that if you read some of the stuff about the shamans in the Amazon and stuff, they would talk about how, so people, if you ask them how they knew that these plants would work together to produce these effects, they they would tell you that the plants told them to do it. That's good, isn't it? So, so the thing the thing that gets me about all of this is, <laughs> apart from the brilliant little factoids that have been peppered throughout this, is uh, we, we're getting to understand fairly well the kind of molecular, cellular, neurotransmitter level effects that we see in animals and in brain studies. But how well do these actually relate to the kind of or how well do we understand the relationship between what we see at a molecular level and what we experience? So, and particularly with something like psychedelics, where we're, we, we know so little about consciousness and this is kind of a change in consciousness. I don't know, I feel like it's kind of exciting, but also it's, it's kind of the great unknown of, of how we understand, like how does a change in the brain affect our perception of the world? Go on, answer no, that. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it is, it, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, it is really interesting. That's... Insert, yeah. insert hand wavy gesture here but I think that also boils down to we sort of briefly touched on it there this idea of set and setting yeah. that you can take a substance in two different environments and it can have a completely different effect on you and, or you can take an environment when you're in two different moods and it can have a really different effect on you and we even see this with alcohol as I'm sure people in this room have experienced drinking the same amount of alcohol on two different nights and having feeling vastly differently drunk on those two different nights and like some of that's probably to do with whether you've eaten before or other things but some of it is due to how you feel or where you are people can drink more at home than they can when they're out because their body somehow adjusts to where they are and you see this in people who use heroin as well if you use heroin in an environment where you've used heroin previously you can take more and if you use it in a novel environment you're at a higher risk of overdose and like understanding why this is is something that really really fascinates me but i think that is probably a good point to open it up to questions and or philosophical points or anything that you'd like to add thank you for listening Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, so uh, based on the research that you guys are aware of, um, are there any important, maybe like other uh, similarities or differences between uh, the negative effects on the brain of, say, uh, chemical stimuli from like excessive drug use or maybe 
uh, visual stimuli from like excessive viewing of pornography or something like that. Ooh, so is is the question kind of addiction related to substances versus addiction related to something like po- online pornography? Yeah, like how how analogous are two things? It's, it's a really good question, and it's it, what quite often happens in sort of media representation of this is we get our old friend the nucleus accumbens uh, mentioned, <laughs> saying, "Well, we see nucleus accumbens firing in people who compulsively watch pornography, so therefore it's as as addictive as crack." Or <laughs> I don't know. I saw someone refer to smartphones as digital cocaine yesterday, and I got annoyed. Um, I, I don't know, really. I think that. I dare say if this is wrong, we can chop it out of the podcast, can't we? Um, I would imagine, based on uh, nothing at all, really, this is just... I would imagine that... So what happens with things like um, viewing pornography, this is like a, a natural reward response, I guess, whatever is produced in the brain in response to that. And I would imagine that it would be difficult to um, kind of naturally produce such to such great extent the same way that you can chemically induce it. And I think, like, obviously drugs have physiological effects as well as effects on the brain, which are partly caused by the effects that they have on the brain. But, you know, things like stimulants can, incre- can put strain on your heart. So if you regularly take stimulants, you're at increased risk of things like heart attack. I'm not aware of any studies that... Because I imagine looking at porn increases your heart rate. But I'm not aware of any studies of people who compulsively watch porn that um, they are experiencing sort of those physiological changes as well so while I think that there are kind of some similarities in terms of the sort of I don't know I mean you can have an argument about how to define addiction anyway but the way that I think is quite a good way is that you sort of change your life and your behavior around this drug or this activity potentially and I do think that substances are in a different class to things like watching porn or shopping maybe gambling is more like substance use in terms of the sort of it can have a stronger negative effect on your life kind of maybe more quickly than something like too much porn but yeah it's something that we don't understand very well actually and i think so there are there's kind of a disagreement in the research community as well with some people thinking that yeah they are related and you can be addicted to anything if you do it enough and some people thinking that drugs are a special case and there's something sort of category difference between them but it's a really good question and sorry that we don't have a better answer blame science it's a really good question is there anybody um because i know there's a few people in the addiction research group do you have anything to add about no it doesn't matter you don't understand it's fine (laughs) any other questions I remember hearing years ago that taking ecstasy or MDMA um, creates holes in your brain or something like this or increases the um, kind of blank spaces in the brain. Is that true? Is that based on animals? Have we found that in humans? I know know the answer to this because I covered it in my MDMA podcast available now on (laughs) acast.com forward slash say why to drugs. it was a paper that's since been retracted because the person doing it labelled their uh, vials of chemicals wrong and the drug that they thought was MDMA was actually not MDMA. It was methamphetamine, yeah. Uh, so 
There is not. So it, it caused dopamine neurotoxicity, is what they found, wasn't it? And then they had to retract it. Yeah. But yeah, that, but it got a lot of media coverage at the time. But the retraction, surprisingly enough, got less media coverage. So plenty of people still go around thinking that's true. But yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the uh, setting of drug taking impacts the the effect, the influence of the drug. Do you reckon that has any influence on clinical implications if it's done in clinical trials? And if so, what? <laughs> yeah Great yeah question. i think that's a really good question yeah it's a, it's a really good question no it's uh that is i think fundamental to doing the research in a clinical setting is that they are trying their best to control the environment in which it is giving to produce the optimum effects with a drug that is very unpredictable no, um, I absolutely agree that if you keep everything as consistent as possible, then you minimise the impact of those, of the effect of setting. Yeah. And these studies uh, of these drugs, which potentially have these therapeutic effects, are often in very small samples, um, which is a necessary limitation because basically what they're doing currently in this area is um, gaining credibility. The research community, to prove probably have to try even harder with these drugs to prove that they may be beneficial because there is such negativity around them. But on top of that is because there was a lot of research done in the 50s and 60s with LSD that was really, really bad and was really, really unscientific and really uncontrolled. Um, And it's really been quite damaging to psychedelic research reputation. And so now research is being done in very, very small samples with you know kind of really really control in a really really controlled manner and one of the important things to get correct is trying to control the setting that people take them in um yeah but it, but because it's such an unpredictable they are quite unpredictable drugs yeah uh, but i think i think you're right in that how do we know what's the best setting to have the best effect and I think that's something that's quite... Yeah, it's probably not in an fMRI scanner, is it? But... <laughs> well, so David Nutt, who was involved in those in the psilocybin in um, MRI scanner paper, used to be at Bristol where I was before he moved to Imperial. And before he ever ran the study in, uh, in a scanner, he created a cardboard MRI scanner in one of the uh, top floor rooms in one of the buildings in Bristol where he ran sort of initial proof of concept of this where he got people to take psilocybin and go in the in the cardboard scanner to just see how because obviously i don't know if anyone in here has had a brain scan but it's pretty claustrophobic it's not i mean i found myself i've had a couple and i found myself getting quite anxious in the scanner because you're really enclosed you have to keep your head completely still which is obviously potentially slightly challenging if you're tripping as well um so that so he ran the study in a cardboard scanner to sort of work out whether whether people would actually tolerate being in a scanner but and so obviously the setting there is extremely important you need to make or more more the set actually is like is this person kind of relaxed enough and feels safe enough that they're not going to absolutely freak out when they're put into a brain scanner because also if you do have to uh if you have to ever what's called quench a brain scanner like if for some reason something goes badly wrong and you need to like you'd never turn a brain a MRI scanner off and if you have to turn it off it basically explodes the top off it and it costs you millions of pounds to fix so you really don't want anything going wrong that could damage your scanner so, so it's, these tolerability ideas were really important but I think also to come back to a point that uh, that Carl made earlier as well about the sort of 
the literature kind of in the past maybe being a bit discredited it's not necessarily that it was it wasn't sort of bad bad awful research it's just that we've got better at kind of designing these studies so the the, the ketamine study that uh is mentioned in an episode of my podcast uh, with uh, Professor Celia Morgan has done. She's looking at the use of ketamine for alcohol dependency. And um, that's actually based on research that was done in Russia, I think it was, in the 60s. And the research itself was kind of interesting and fine, but it wasn't designed particularly well. The sort of control group wasn't particularly, or maybe there wasn't one, I can't remember now. But taking these ideas and these interesting studies that maybe weren't designed very well and rerunning them now, when public attitudes are changing as well, yeah. and I think that's hugely important in the sign of the kind of, there's a, there's a bit of a swell that people are going, hang on, these drugs could potentially have really useful benefits. And actually there's loads of drugs that we think of as recreational drugs or like, to use an awful phrase, drugs of abuse, that also have incredible benefits. So like ketamine is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicine. Morphine, heroin are almost indistinguishable. Uh, even caffeine is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines as well, not just for early mornings when you've had a late night. Drugs can have more than one effect is the point I'm well, I think, uh, kind well, of making. I think the, you were saying about um, some of these um, psychedelic studies that were conducted um that have been improved upon and there was actually an awful lot of studies at the time and there are some really really insightful things that we can get from them yeah we've probably got time for one more question if anyone's got one um there's um a lot of research about um amphetamine use for like recreation um do people who use amphetamines recreationally are they different from people who use it for um, work purposes like adderall um addicts or the cognitive enhancers question. Cognitive enhancers. Um, I don't know of any d- studies that have looked at. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Sorry, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was flapping. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know of any studies that have looked at directly comparing people who like use speed versus people who are prescribed deamphetamine for uh, ADHD versus people who use prescribed the amphetamine for as a cognitive enhancer because I would imagine that those three different groups would be quite different in terms of their sort of well their motivations for using are obviously very different so I think it's quite likely that they themselves would have quite different demographics as well but I don't know whether anyone's actually looked into that Uh, No but it's an interesting uh, point that um amphetamines are prescribed for or amphetamine derivatives are prescribed for ADHD obviously they have quite a high abuse potential um, but there are other um, drugs that are prescribed for ADHD which don't have as high abuse potential but are still being used in healthy populations without ADHD to enhance cognition so um, like you were saying it's the the motivation to use is uh it's going to it have an impact yeah. on, on, yeah, the type of person that chooses to, to do that. But now you've got me thinking about a research idea. And that is the best thing that comes out of these is when I go, oh, I could write a grant about that. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to be a co-author? Um, I would. <laughs> <laughs> we, that, is, that is a whole hour. I'm going to have to edit this. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I hope it was 
interesting and entertaining edutainment. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm going to cut that out for a start. <laughs> Thank you all so much for being part of this and uh, we will be out there if you want to come and chat to us as well. Thanks a lot. And there we are. This was a bit of an experiment. I wasn't really sure how a live podcast would work, so I'd love to know what you think of the live format. Let me know on Twitter, join the Facebook group, or send me an email. Carry a pigeon, I don't mind. I'd love to do some more if you think people would be interested. Let me know topics, potential guests, anything. Now, I promised you some news, and here it is. I've been busy recently because I'm working on Say Why to Drugs, the book, which is very exciting to me anyway, hopefully to you guys as well. It's already available to pre-order on Amazon. I hope you guys like it. I'll be back in two weeks' time with another special episode. Earlier this year, I spoke to Jenny Valentish about her book Woman of Substances. And then there'll be more to come in the new year as well. But for now, thank you so much for coming back and joining the podcast after all these months. Speak soon. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.